Good morning, everyone. It's Grant here. I just want to say we love you. We miss you. We hope you're well. We hope you're having a good Sunday morning. And it does just feel so good to know that we're able to gather in this way in homes around the city at the same time on Sunday morning just to worship and to pray. And I want to ask you to open your heart and just trust that God could meet you where you're at this morning, on your couch, in your bed, wherever you are, and that he wants to speak to you as we carry on our In Durban As It Is In Heaven series this morning. Now, I just want to do a little side punt for our Equip Night last week. Uh, I interviewed our friend One Mukhatle around the ideas of Jesus and culture, and it was just such a helpful, clarifying, biblical, Christ-centered interview where he spoke about the realities and the tensions and the difficulties and the beauty of being a culturally diverse church inside a very diverse city and what it looks like to follow Jesus together with the differences which can separate us, but actually which God can use to show the beauty of the gospel to the city and the world around us. So I want to encourage you to check that out. I think it's practical and so equipping for us and the church God is calling us to become. Now this morning we are carrying on our series with a message on the gospel, classism and the poor. So if you have lived in South Africa for any amount of time, and maybe some of you are new to our country or are checking in from somewhere else, but if you've lived here for any amount of time, you know just how divided and unequal our country is in so many different ways, particularly when it comes to money. Now, sadly, South Africa is generally regarded as the country in the world with the highest income inequality, which means the biggest gap between rich and poor out of any nation in the world. And sadly, again, this was spotlighted last year to the world in the May 13, 2019 edition of Time magazine. We were the cover story. And maybe you saw this cover about the world's most unequal country. Now, the photographer is a South African named Johnny Miller. He's uh, taken a whole bunch of these photos in places around the world. But really, as he studied his master's in Cape Town, he thought maybe the things that we cannot see from ground level would be easier to reveal using a drone and to get these uh, aerial overhead photos. So the photo on the cover of this Time magazine was from Johannesburg and two neighboring neighborhoods. But this photograph is from our city, from Durban. And then this one is from Hout Bay in Cape Town. And sadly, the statistics tell exactly the same story of inequality and poverty that we see in Johnny Miller's photos. The South African Labor and Development Research Unit, Seldrew, based at the University of Cape Town, found that 50% of South Africans are chronically poor, only 20% of South Africans belong to the stable middle class, while only 4% belong to the elite class. The rest, 11% belong to the transient poor, and 15% belong to the vulnerable middle class. And sadly, all of these statistics also were drawn up before COVID-19 hit, and our economy has been affected in a number of new ways by the pandemic we're living through. You can go onto the Seldrew website, and you can actually check out, put, by putting in your income, where you sit in the spectrum of our country. But the stats are that if you earn 11,250 Rand a month or more, then you're in the top 5% of earners in the country. Another set of research shows that 3,500 people, just a few people, 0.01% of our adult population own 15% of the total wealth of South Africa. And there's actually been no uh, decrease in wealth inequality over the 26 years since the 1994 first free and fair democratic elections. The top 1% of our country control 55% of all wealth. And just to say that in another way, the top 1% control over half of the wealth in our nation, 
while the bottom 90% control at best 14% of the wealth in South Africa. That means that the top 10% of people in our country own somewhere between 86% and 99% of all of the wealth in South Africa, depending on which statistics and research you go by. And lastly, and maybe most shockingly, uh, due to their debt, the bottom 50% of earners in our country have an average negative net wealth of minus 16,000 rand. So that is our country, that's our city, that's the context we live in. This is where we are following Jesus and living out our faith. So the question I want to ask today is what do we do and how do we live and how do we respond to this in a city and a country that is so economically defined and divided like ours is? Because obviously we can hear those statistics and we can feel overwhelmed. You know, just think, wow, the problem is too big. Or we can be numb to the reality of those numbers and those pictures. We can feel the pain of them. And for some of us, maybe that pain feels too great or too personal. We can feel guilt or we can pass the blame and point fingers at others. Or we can just ignore what is going on. But what the scriptures call us to do is to remember the poor. Remember the poor. Some of you know this passage in Galatians chapter 2. Paul the apostle who is probably the greatest evangelist, uh, church planter, missionary, apostle, disciple maker in the history of the church. He goes to Jerusalem, to the center of Christianity, where the first church was planted, and he goes to meet with the big three, the big dogs. He meets with James, who was Jesus' brother. He meets with John, who was Jesus' at least self-proclaimed best friend. And then Peter, who it seems like Jesus installed as the first lead pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. And he goes to these three guys and he shares with them what he believes God has called him to do. Now listen, all of us should have a sense of the call of God. We, we pray, we seek God, we, we see what he puts on our hearts and we respond to that call. But in Paul's situation, it was a little bit different. Paul had a unique story with Jesus. And really in Paul's case, Jesus came down from heaven to earth after his ascension to heaven. And he appeared to Paul in the flesh. And he personally shared the gospel and revealed himself to Paul and showed Paul what he wanted him to do. Now listen, if you're sitting in your life group, that is a pretty cool story to share. How did you meet Jesus? Well, he came and met me. He introduced himself to me. But Paul shares with these big dogs, these apostles, what Jesus asked him to do. To take the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, the the pagans, the non-Jews. To plant churches all over the known world. To make disciples and to advance God's kingdom. And when he shares with them, these three, James, Peter, and John, they endorse it. They say, okay, we're behind you. You get our apostolic stamp of approval. We back you. We're going to finance this. We're going to pray for this. We, we want to see this happen. And as we read the second half of the book of Acts in the New Testament, we see Paul's missionary journey, journeys as he goes out and he does the things God called him to do. But there's almost this moment in his commissioning. In the excitement of this, wow, Paul, your testimony is amazing. Jesus appeared to you. He's called you to this. This fits in so well with what we feel God has called us to, preaching the gospel to the Jews. You're going to go to the Gentiles, planting churches. We're all in. But it's almost like in the midst of the excitement and enthusiasm and cheering, it's just a moment of uh, somberness or sobriety or, or honesty where the tone changes. And it's like the three just pull him aside and say, okay, you're going out to do this. But can we ask you one thing? Before you go out, Galatians 2 verse 10 says, they asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. So Paul himself, as he writes to this church, 
is acknowledging that he knows that as we go out on mission as the church, we can't just preach the gospel. And now some of you are sitting there going, but hang on, isn't that the Great Commission? That's what Jesus has called us to. You know, Oney joked about it on Thursday night. It's not the Great Suggestion, it's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, Jesus says, Go and preach the gospel to all nations. Make disciples everywhere. As you go, as you live your lives, as you move around, take the gospel and make disciples. Teach people to obey everything Jesus has called us to do, to live out the faith. And then baptize them or immerse them in the fullness of our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't that the mission of the church? And I want to say 100%. Harbor City, that is what we are about. We, we want to make disciples. We want to advance God's kingdom. We want to multiply churches. We want to see His kingdom come in Durban as it is in heaven. But at the same time, Paul is saying to us, we can't just preach the gospel in word. We must preach it in deed too. We're all about proclamation, but we're also about demonstration. And as we proclaim the gospel, as I spoke about in part one of the series, we want to see personal spiritual renewal. We want to see people born again and meeting Jesus and beginning to follow him. But there's also got to be gospel demonstration where we go out to see the world around us renewed by the works of the people of God, being the hands and feet of Jesus, salt and light in the city that we live in. We need to have both parts if we want to do faithful mission in South Africa, and in any part of the world. And Jesus' own brother James, one of the three who was there in Galatians 2 in the church in Jerusalem, he writes about the same idea in his short five-chapter letter at the end of the New Testament. And he says very famously in James 1 verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, if you think about it, that has been our preaching track for this year. This has been the trajectory God has had us on. We started the year with a series on how we change, looking at how to keep ourselves unstained from the world, or how to become like Jesus, or how to be sanctified or transformed as disciples. And now we're in a series on gospel renewal, on seeing the world around ours changed and transformed through the good news of Jesus. And here in James 1 verse 27, he's talking about both together. You know, he's talking about personal morality and social morality. He's talking about personal renewal. What happens inside of me? God changing me from the inside out. And he's talking about social renewal, the the renewal of all things, the gospel transforming the whole world around us and renewing it and making it the way that it should be. And in James 1, we have these two things together. You see, this verse isn't like a definition of what true religion is all about. He doesn't talk about faith in Jesus. He doesn't talk about repentance of sin. He doesn't talk about a whole bunch of different elements of what it looks like to live out our faith. But instead, what James is saying here is that religion without personal holiness and without a care for the poor, the vulnerable, and the weak, the the stuff we spoke about last week, without those two things, it's not alive. Our faith is not alive. It's dead. It's not real without those two things. And he's saying that really our faith needs to go deeper than just what we say. It's so easy to say the right thing, but our faith needs to go deeper to who we are and what we do with our lives. James is the one who's going to say in chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. It's not alive. It's not living. It's not real. True faith needs to change us from the inside out. It's got to change our hearts. It's got to change the way we think about and see the world. And of course, it's got to change the way we live our lives and what we do and prioritize. 
And as we saw last week, as we spoke about biblical justice, God's heart is for the quartet of the vulnerable, for the orphan, the widow, the poor, the immigrant or the foreign national. God's heart is desperately for them. He cares for them. And we as the people of God are called to care about that too. And as we walk with God humbly, we're called to do justice out of a heart of deep compassion, love and grace for the world around us. That's what's going on in James 1 verse 27. And James does this amazing thing. As he transitions from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he takes us from this big picture, 30,000 foot view, this bird's eye view of justice and remembering the poor. The things that we would all amen and say, James, we back that, we believe in that, we're in. And now he takes us to ground level, to street level, and he actually takes us into a church service, like a Harbor City Sunday gathering at Glenwood Prep. And he goes in as an investigative journalist. He's got his lapel mic or lapel camera on. He's going in as a secret investigator. And he wants to see among people like you and I, people who proclaim that we follow Christ, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, on-mission disciples of God. He wants to see in a community of those people, how does this change how we interact? You know, the people who amen to remembering and serving the poor, how does their community life look? And he starts in James 2 verse 1 and he says, My brothers or fellow Christians, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And we should amen that. Come on, we're in. We believe that. He says it more strongly in the NLT translation. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And we amen that too, you know. We believe that faith in Jesus and prejudice or discrimination just cannot go together. They can't be the same thing. And James sketches the scenario of what life in the church can look like for us in verses 2 to 4. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Now listen, I know our Sunday gatherings haven't looked the way they normally do for four plus months now. But imagine we're back at Glenwood Prep. It's a beautiful Sunday. You're maybe drinking a coffee under the trees. And you see a beautiful car drive up Bath Road and go into the parking lot. It's your dream car, the, the best car you can imagine. And you go up to the parking lot and you see who gets out. And they are dressed amazingly well. And you see them, they look really fresh. They're looking really good. And as you look at them, you realize that they're a big deal. Like they're, they're a hero of yours. They're a celebrity. They're rich. They're powerful. They're influential. They're well-networked. And they are coming into Harbor City to join us for a Sunday service. You're like over the moon. This is the dream for you. You realize this is maybe the most significant or important person to ever step foot in our church venue. And you can't believe it. But on that same Sunday, something else happens. Verse 2 carries on and says, A poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Maybe you see them walking up Bath Road and coming in through the gates and joining us and grabbing a coffee. And it says in verse 3, If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Now look, what James is saying here is a huge difference to one of the things we've taught over the years. You know, if you see someone on their own on Sunday drinking a coffee or just standing or sitting by themselves or sitting in like our hall on their own, please end the conversation with whoever you're talking to or take them with you. That's an emergency. Go and make them feel welcome. 
say hello, get to know their story, introduce them to someone, show them where they can get a coffee or go to the bathroom, whatever. Please, we don't want anyone on their own. We want to include people in the family of God unless they're praying or want space. We don't want people standing on their own. But that's clearly what, not what James is talking about here. He's not talking about good hospitality. He's writing against bad hospitality. And James is speaking about a scenario on a Sunday where you see this rich, famous, cool, successful, influential person come into our service and you make a beeline for them. You don't even say goodbye to the person you're talking to. You just go straight for them because you think that actually they can give you something. By speaking to them, by being associated with them, by being friends with them, they can help your image, your career, your network, your your possibilities. They can help you out. So you're using them. And then at the same time as you beeline for this rich person, you you don't just ignore a, a poor, uncool, powerless person who can't give you anything. You don't just ignore them, but you mistreat them at a Sunday gathering where people come to worship Jesus because you think that they're lower than you and they don't deserve the time of day. I want you to notice here that in this passage, it's a double prejudice. It's both as favoring the rich person or the person of a higher socioeconomic class, and then it's discriminating against the poor person wearing torn, broken down clothes. It's double prejudice that we see in James chapter 2. This rich person receives special treatment from you. You roll out the red carpet. You uh, make them feel good about themselves. You get them a coffee. You put them in a great seat with a great view of everything that's happening. And you basically give them the five-star treatment. While the poor person receives a worse treatment from you than you would treat a normal person because of their social standing, because of their socioeconomic class, because of what they're wearing and the fact that they can't add value to your lives. You can't get anything from them. Because of that, you actually treat them worse than you would treat anyone else Because you want them to know that in your mind, they're unwanted here because of their socioeconomic class. The poor person is told, either stand over there kind of out of the way, you know, I don't even really want to see you, or sit on the floor, which again is terrible hospitality. Harbour City, I, I hope that if a visitor came in and you'd been part of the family of the church, that you would give them your chair. You would show them around. You would show them. You wouldn't just push them to the side and tell them to sit on the floor. That you would give up your seat for them in the way Christ has served us so sacrificially. But the Greek here for this actually says, sit under my footstool. It's not just sit on the floor, sit next to me. It's sit under my footstool. This is a picture of class and power. It's like you're saying to them, you are worth less than me. So not only am I not going to give you my seat, but you should sit under my seat. You don't deserve my time or my uh, attention at all. In fact, in my eyes, you are beneath me. So the place that you should be in the space is beneath me. And I think as we read this, we should feel shocked at this, that this happens in church services, that this happens among the community of God's people, that we could be so classist and prejudiced and judgmental. Surely this thing happens out there, but not in the church. But sadly, in James' example, we see it does happen in the church. And it definitely happens in our country. And it can happen in our community too. Since we went into lockdown, I've been on a number of Zoom calls. As I'm sure you have, I'm sure you're pretty tired of looking at a screen. But I've been on so many calls with pastors from around our country and also around the world, trying to work out how to navigate 
the realities of our current crisis, our, our world, how to lead the church, how to pastor people, how to navigate economic uncertainty and the realities that we face, how to serve the poor in our midst, uh, just how to be the church and be on mission in a time where we're all locked up in home or, you know, just everything has changed about work and schooling and life. And some of those calls have been really helpful. Some of the webinars have been profound. But I was on a call pretty early on into lockdown and they asked someone from another country to come in. This was a pastor of a very large church. And the reason they asked them to speak to us is because they were from the future. They were two or three weeks into lockdown, whereas we had just started out. They were a couple of weeks ahead of us. So they were there to kind of guide us and give us some direction as we navigated these new realities. And one of the practical things this pastor said to us, which shocked me, was you should get the 150 wealthiest members of your church around you. Check in with them, pastor them, make sure they're doing okay if you want to survive this time financially. And I was shocked by it. I, I can see the wisdom of it. It makes perfect common sense to do that. You know, if, if they've got the money and we need money, it does make sense in a way that we make sure that they are still giving to the church and are well taken care of. In a business sense, that makes sense to me. But doesn't that sound like manipulation to you? Doesn't that sound like James chapter 2 treating the wealthy members of the church differently to other members of the church because of what you can get from them? As I processed this after the call, I was pretty horrified that this had been said and accepted by so many of these pastors from around our nation. I thought to myself, is that what Jesus would do? Would, would he settle up to the rich members of the church to make sure that things were taken care of and the bills were paid? Or would he do the opposite? Would he gather around the 150 poorest members of the church, the most vulnerable and weak, to make sure they were taken care of? You know, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church is described as the body of Christ, and each one of us is seen as a member or an organ or a limb or a part of the body. And the idea that is spoken about there is that when one body, one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. When one body is part of the body is in need, the whole body stops what it's doing to care for that part. It's like if you slice your finger open while you're making a salad. What you do is everything stops, you know. The whole body stops what it's doing. You go and you get Savlon or Dettol or whatever it is. You clean out that wound. You, you make sure that you rinse it under the tap and, and then you put the plaster on and make sure that that finger is taken care of. If you need to, you go to the hospital and get stitches and take care of that finger in its moment of need. And I thought, of course, the church is called to pastor everyone. We've got to pastor the rich, pastor the middle class, pastor the poor members of our community. But at the same time, is the right response of the people of God at a time like this to sidle up to the rich members of a community to get money from them to carry on existing as a church. I think that's James 2 thinking. I don't think that's the way of Jesus or his gospel. But in South Africa, income inequality is a huge problem. And because of this, classism exists and is a major issue for us. Yes, racism divides us. Sexism divides us. Xenophobia divides us. Language barriers and cultural barriers all divide us and play a part in life in this country. But here in James 2, we see the reality that our socioeconomic class and realities can divide us, even in the community of the church, even in the people of God that Jesus has died on the cross to bring together and unite inside of him. These realities of money and income, class and pride and envy and uh, I guess our jobs and our wealth and our, our position in society, all of these things 
can separate us from being the family of God together on mission. And for us in South Africa, this plays such a big part because this is such a defining and dividing reality for us. For many South Africans, our identity, our value, our worth is so linked to our class, to our income, to our jobs. Don't you think that's true? I think that's why one of the first things you say to someone when you meet them is, what do you do? And you know, in our city and in other parts of this country, often people say, what school did you go to or where do you live? Because we're constantly working out where do they fit into this picture. For Christians, though, we don't find our worth or identity or value or our sense of self or success in what we do or how much we earn or in what we have or where we live. We don't find our identity in the class that we fall into. We find our identity and worth and security in Jesus Christ. And we also don't put other people in boxes based on where they live or what they do for a living or how much they earn or where they went to school or what car they drive or what schools their kids are at or the clothes that they wear. You see, for us as Christians, the truest thing about us is who we are in Christ. What Jesus says about us, that is our identity. That is our worth. That is our value. That is what we're basing it all on. James carries on his thinking in James 2 verse 8 to 9, saying, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And Harvest City, I want to say we are going after that. We want to love God and we want to love our neighbors in our neighborhood, in our city, really, really well. That, that is a picture of spiritual maturity. He says, but if you show partiality, discrimination, classism, prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This discussion in James 2 on discrimination and mistreating the poor and classism and all of that takes up about 10% of James's short five-chapter letter. And I read that and I think to myself, what was going on in the church that he felt he needed to spend so much time talking about this stuff? You know, we've got a small window into the realities of this church. We, we see what happened in their services, you know. He, he literally goes in as this investigative journalist and shows us behind the scenes. But we don't have the specifics. But what we do see is that even among a community of believers like us, Christians who love Jesus and sing the beautiful songs we sung today. Big shout out to Don and Anarita for the way they've been leading us in worship recently. We really appreciate you guys. But we can sing those beautiful songs and then be so prejudiced or discriminatory or judgmental towards other people based on how they look or what they do or what they don't do or what they have or what they don't have. And that can become a culture entrenched among us. We can begin to just accept this is the way things are this is the way things are done around here. We can become blind to the sin ourselves, the sin in other people and the sin in us. And we can begin to perpetuate this evil ourselves. It happened in Galatians 2. Paul had to stand up to Peter and say that what you were doing is not in line with the truth of the gospel. And that is also not the way Jesus has treated us. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, I do just want to say this is not talking about material wealth. If you were exploring Christianity, if you were new to this church, just want to say we do not believe that Christians get rich, will never get sick, and will never suffer. 
We're experiencing that at the moment with this COVID-19 pandemic. Everyone, Christian and non-Christian, are affected. Everyone, Christian and non-Christian, are, are sick, are losing jobs, are under financial pressure, are dealing with the same realities. No, the prosperity gospel is a false message. This is if you come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the days of your life. But the New Testament tells us, and we see this in the life of Jesus and Paul and others, is that as we follow Jesus, we will suffer. We will go through hardship. We will go through persecution. But the Christ satisfies us in the midst of it all. But what this passage is saying to us is that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all things. Everything that exists is his. It belongs to him, which means he is very rich. Jesus is like richer than Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos rich. He's the richest of the rich because everything that exists, even the things that we think belong to us, everything that exists was being created belongs to him. Jesus owns it all. And that Jesus, the richest person in the universe, came down from heaven to earth. He gave up the glory and splendor and worship of the throne room of heaven to come down to earth and be an ordinary poor boy in the Middle East. He came and he lived his life as a widow. It seems like Joseph, Mary's husband, died when Jesus was very young. Not only that, but he became an immigrant or a foreign national right at the start of his life. His parents were on the run for their lives. They had to leave uh, where they were living and go to northern Africa to hide out and protect Jesus's life. Jesus never owned a home. He didn't live a life of luxury. He didn't uh, have a steady income in his later years at all. Jesus trusted God for everything he needed. And that same Jesus who owned everything, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he gave everything. He gave his life for you and for I to make us rich in him. You see, in Christ, we have the true riches of salvation, of the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, our shame and guilt is washed away and we are made new. Jesus has given us the true riches of salvation and eternal life and a relationship with God. And he has chosen us and adopted us as his sons and daughters that we can call God dad, father. The king of kings is our dad. And now in him, we also give, you know, whether that's out of your abundance or out of your lack. Freely we have received and now freely we give. In Christ, we've been blessed in so many different ways. And that means that we want to be a blessing to the world around us in as many ways as possible. That is the message of the gospel. You know, we have received so much from Jesus freely by his grace. When we were still spiritually poor and needy and couldn't help ourselves or do anything for ourselves, even then he met us where we were at and gave us these spiritual riches in him. Freely he gave us everything, even though we didn't deserve it and we hadn't earned it. And now we also freely give. We give this message to others of the hope and salvation that is in him. And freely we give out of our material wealth to help those that are materially or financially poor. You see, remembering the poor is not about earning our way into heaven. Remembering the poor is about bringing something of heaven down to earth, which is what the series is all about. This vision of in Durban as it is in heaven, of gospel renewal in the world around us, brought about through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about here. So maybe we can just end practically. If you're sitting there and you feel like the Spirit is doing something in you and you're going, how do I remember the poor? What do I do in response? 
here's three ways we can respond to the need of the poor. The first is through relief. Relief is temporary emergency help to avert a humanitarian disaster. And if you've been in Harbor City for any amount of time, we, we've done this over the years. Last year, when the terrible flooding happened in KZN, we took up an offering to be able to give and care for people in our city that were in need. Currently, with what is going on with this global pandemic that we're living through, we've taken up a COVID relief offering to help people in our church who are struggling, have lost jobs, have lost income, have need, and also to help people in the city around us to make it through this time. And I do want to take a moment just to say thank you, Harbor City, for your generosity. We've received tens and tens of thousands of rand and been able to give away tens of thousands of rand to people that are in need, to pay rent for those who can't afford it, to buy groceries for those who are in need. And I do want to say, if you are watching this today and you are struggling, you have need, speak to your life group leader, speak to us, let us know, and we'll see how we can help you. And also to those of you who didn't know we had this offering going or want to continue to give, the offering will stay open as long as we have need and as we continue to meet the needs of people in our church and our city. The second way we can meet the needs of people around us is through development. Now, development is non-emergency help that assists people to find solutions to their ongoing problems of poverty. It sometimes involves money, but more often involves a partnership with people that helps them to affect change and equips them to live a new life and to break the cycle of poverty that they are in. Now, two ways that we've done that as a church over the years is through NEMA and Paradigm Shift. Some of you have been part of those different initiatives. NEMA is an ongoing initiative that we've got into the Durban Children's Home, where people go in every week, or at least did before lockdown, to spend time with kids reading with them and helping them to grow in their reading so that they can get a better education and a better job and to break some of the cycles of poverty in their lives. And then Paradigm Shift is an entrepreneur training course that we've done a number of times over the years where we kind of pit different uh, business people and entrepreneurs in our church with micro entrepreneurs in our city who uh, really are earning 200 rand or less a day. And we give them business skills and training and mentorship and coaching and help them to develop their business in a Christ-centered way. Now, many of you have been involved in those over the years, and some of you also are involved in development work professionally. That is your job. And some of you give the spare time that you've got to be involved in doing the work of development. I think that's so amazing. The third way we can help out is through advocacy. Now, advocacy means to speak up on behalf of someone else. We quoted this last week from Psalm 31. Speak up, be, be a mouthpiece for the vulnerable and the weak and the needy. And as we engage in advocacy, we really speak against unjust systems and policies in our society that contribute to people being powerless and vulnerable. So advocacy is concerned with changing the underlying causes that exist that are creating poverty and, more, uh, and to create a more just society for people rather than just addressing the symptoms of such poverty directly. Now, if you are watching this and you're saying, Grant, I get it, I see it, I want to be involved. What can I do to do justice and remember the poor? I've got time or I've got money or I've got skills. How can I get involved in this? How can I play a part? We wanted to show you three different ways that you can get involved. And we hope that these will inspire you and maybe God will speak to you as you watch this. Eteguini wants to be known as the most caring and livable city in Africa. Durban is the third largest city in South Africa. Over 3,000 households are child-headed. 36% rely on grants 
to survive. 3,000 sleep rough on the streets in the city, with a further 2,000 calling a night shelter home. Heroin and Wonga have affected many job seekers. No single focused entity can solve the social problems we face. We need a collaborative approach. We Are Durban aims to make sure every poor, widow and orphan of Eteguini is taken care of. We partner with over 200 organizations who deal with human suffering, empowering them to excel in their mandate. Most organizations start with passion, but to make true impact, the business side must develop. That's where we and you come in. You can show that Durban cares by engaging in one of two ways. Volunteer your professional skill. Make a monthly donation so we can employ another staff member. One staff member means a hundred more organizations and about 10,000 more people empowered. Let's make Durban all it was meant to be together. Good morning everybody, my name is Krista, for those of you who don't know me, and I volunteer part-time at an organization called The Seed Fund here in Malacca, which is in Red Hill in Durban North. I'm standing there right now, sorry if it's a bit noisy. Um, the Seed Fund is all about empowering people from the settlement, so our heart is to see people move from a place of poverty to a place of dignity and where they can contribute positively to their, um, to their lives and support their children and find jobs and yeah, just in general feel empowered and feel a sense of dignity in their lives. So we would love some help with that and we are always looking for volunteers. So um, ways that you could potentially partner with us is um, obviously with because of COVID a lot of our projects we're not able to do at the moment so but there are some projects that are still running one of them is an empowerment project where we are, have identified a couple of people in the community who are super creative and motivated to start their own businesses and what we want to do is help give them the skills in something like crocheting or woodwork um, or macrame or clay and then actually help them to sell those products um, and connect them to a market that would buy them. So if you have any of those skills and you could come for maybe an hour or two hours one afternoon, very socially distanced and teach those skills and also just interact and just start forming a relationship with some people, even if it's once off or if it's um, regular, that would be amazing. Another way that you can get involved is that we have an ECD center or a creche for the little kitties here and basically what we need is some resources for them. So I have this vision of how we could make some resources out of recyclable materials. So you can contact me and let me know if you're keen and then you could collect some recyclable materials. I'll give you the patterns and you can make the activities at home and I'll collect them from you and come and bring them to the ECD center. The third way that you could help is financially. So we have some projects running that obviously always need um, financial support so we can provide people with meals um, throughout the week and also as kids with school supplies and school uniforms. We also have a Back a Buddy initiative where you'll have one child that you commit to pay every month into their um, account and so that they can get all the things that they need so they can get an education including taxi money and um, school uniform and lunch for that day. Um, yeah, so there's lots of different ways to get involved and a lot more. And I'd love to just partner with you in whatever skills you have, whatever resources you have. See how we can partner together and make a difference. Thank you. 
Finally, I wanted to highlight the Dennis Hurley Center, which exists in the CBD of Durban. And currently they've been serving the poor and the homeless in our city and providing 500 meals a day in four different places around our city throughout the week, seven days a week. So there are currently four ways that you can get involved in helping out there. The first is to give financially by putting money into the Dennis Hurley Center a bank account using the reference feeding scheme. The second is to volunteer your time. You can actually go in during the week and help to cook meals and make sandwiches. The third way is to make sandwiches at home if you feel more comfortable doing that and to take them in and drop them off. And finally, it's very cold in Durban at the moment. Winter is hitting hard. You can donate warm clothes and particularly they've got a need for men's small and medium clothes at the moment. So if you'd like to find out more, when you can go and volunteer, how to drop off sandwiches, how to help, you can contact Kathy on 083-956-3726. Harbour City, I hope as we've looked at the scriptures and spoken about these things, God is putting a vision in your heart for how we can play a part in renewing Durban through the gospel. I want to pray for us now and just trust that God will speak to us and lead us to remember the poor. So Jesus, we look at you and the way that you left the the riches of heaven and came down and gave your life for us when we were poor in spiritual need, when we were vulnerable, to make us spiritually rich in you. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your salvation. And Lord, as your people, we want to respond. Freely we have received now. Freely we want to give. Lord, I pray for everyone in our church who currently has financial need, that you would meet their needs. Lord, we pray for your grace and provision of jobs, of finances, of answered prayer, of health, of healing at this time. And I pray for us, Lord, out of our abundance or out of our lack, that you would lead us and show us how you want us to serve and play a role in renewing the city around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.